The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. It's uh, just a blessing to come together as God's people, uh, to worship together, to uh, study His Word, to sing together, to have fellowship. Uh, All of these things and elements are intended by God to be a blessing to His people. So what a joy it is each week, hopefully as a Christian, you anticipate each week looking to the time where you can come and Put everything aside, all the distractions and worries of life and the week aside and be with God's people and be refreshed. So I know I do. Um, I thoroughly, a highlight for me is coming to be with God's people and enjoy his Sabbath day together. How about you? Sabbath. Wait, did I, did I say the Sabbath day? Uh-oh. I called today the Sabbath day. I'm sorry. Well, I, I take that back. Um, that was a slip. Let's, let's go to our lesson of the day. Today we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. Actually, that wasn't a slip. That was intentional to see if you were paying attention this morning. Some of you probably caught on. What did Pastor Cliff just say? Enjoying the Sabbath today? He never says that because I don't. And he would never say that because he doesn't believe that today, Sunday, is the Sabbath. That's correct. Because today, Sunday, according to the Bible in the New Testament, it's the Lord's Day, isn't it? It's the Lord's Day. That's totally different. I brought up the Sabbath because it's in our passage today. Luke 14, that's where we'll be. Luke 14, 1 through 6. Walk through that passage today. There's a handout for you, just a basic outline on the bulletin. Also, on the flip side, we've been having some good pictures in our bulletins recently. This isn't a good picture because I'm in it. It's a good picture because... We have our first ever CBC official basketball team that had their first game last week. I'm actually not on the team, uh, but I got to make it in the photo. And they were victorious. Elder Tim's on the team, so you, great picture. So that was a fun time. They'll be doing that on Sundays, representing us well in the city of Sunnyvale. So that takes us back to Luke. We are walking through... The Gospel of Luke, we're about midway through the book. Even though we're midway through the book, we're through most of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry. We are now in the last three to six months of his ministry as he is heading deliberately to the cross, leaving his hometown of Nazareth and Galilee, where he preached for over two years in every, just about every town and city, proclaiming the kingdom of God and that he was the Messiah and doing miracles everywhere he went to validate his claims attracting multitudes and also making enemies along the way, and also focused on his 12 apostles who will represent him when he leaves, and they will start this new entity called the body of Christ, the church, after he sends into heaven. So he's got a lot of things in mind that he's doing. He's got to fulfill the mission of the Father in keeping with Old Testament scripture, the prophecies that predicted when he would die, why he would die, all the while training his 12 apostles, all the while fending off enemies who want to kill him prematurely so that he doesn't die on the Passover, as predicted in the Old Testament. Satan would love that, to get the Messiah to be crucified or to die on a day that is not the Passover, messing up God the Father's plans, because Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He must die 
on Passover and where we are in Luke 14. That's probably three to six months away. Luke is general in his chronology. He doesn't give us a whole lot of specifics often, but he gives us enough information to know that we are somewhere out of Galilee, heading to Jerusalem, probably on the east side of the Jordan River in that land called Perea, a good three to six months away from crucifixion. Jesus' focus is on his 12 apostles, his 70 disciples, the women that are with him, and fulfilling scripture. So we'll pick up at uh, Luke 14, 1 through 6. Before we read 14, 1 through 6, uh, Luke introduces us to an, uh, an incident that happened on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day, uh, if you've been reading Luke carefully, that's a theme that goes, weaves itself throughout the Gospel of Luke, is the Sabbath day, what the Pharisees thought about the Sabbath day, what the Israelites in general thought about the Sabbath day, and what Jesus thinks about the Sabbath day. What Jesus thought about the Sabbath day was radically different than what the Jewish leaders of his day thought, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and a lot of the Jewish people. They were just completely at odds with each other. Yet they claimed to believe in the same holy book, the Torah, the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, where they got it from, but they came to radically two different opinions about the Sabbath, what it was for, how it was to be practiced and observed. And in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus continues to get himself in trouble with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, regarding the Sabbath and certain things that he does on the Sabbath. Uh, So that's the theme. So in light of that, I thought, oh, this is a good opportunity just to remind us what is the Sabbath. I'm surprised, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised how often this issue comes up in the church, even with our members or just people affiliated with our ministry or Christians in general seem to always be questioning or asking about what is the Sabbath, the implications of the Sabbath to Christians. Does the church celebrate the Sabbath? Is Sunday the Sabbath? Is today uh, the Lord's Sabbath when we go to church? Uh, what about that 10th commandment or one of the 10 commandments, number four, honor the Sabbath? Do we obey the 10 commandments or not or do we not as a church? It's a good question. It's a hard question. It's a complicated one, actually. And there's a lot of Scriptures that inform that decision. There's a lot of material that needs to be studied. It's not a superficial answer, and that's where people get in trouble. They come to an unbalanced answer regarding things like the Sabbath and the laws of Moses superficially by not taking in all the data, the full counsel of God, and either end up on one extreme or the other. Some Christians literally say, we don't have anything to do with the Mosaic law The 613 laws of Moses, including the Ten Commandments. They're not binding on me as a Christian. They're not binding on the church. I think that lacks balance, and we'll see why. One of the reasons I think that lacks balance is when the New Testament writers, including Paul and Peter and James, who wrote the New Testament for the church, they make a point, and a lot of times they validate it, justify it, by quoting something out of the Mosaic Law. So they didn't just disregard the law of Moses and its implications. So, And then there are other Christians who go to the other extreme out of balance saying, oh, of course, yes, we practice the Ten Commandments and we practice the Sabbath. And today is the Sabbath. Today is the Lord's rest. That's what Sunday is. That's not biblical either. So to do that, I just thought, let's just get reminded about some basics on the Sabbath before we go. Because that will set the foundation very nicely for... uh, Luke 14, 1 through 6, and then other encounters Jesus had on the Sabbath with folks. So 
Uh, let's just do a quick survey. I promise it'll be quick. Starting at Exodus, and if you don't have a Bible, you can just listen carefully. But I just want to do an overview of the main points regarding the Sabbath, because like I said, a lot of Christians are confused about it. A lot of informed Christians who've grown up in the church, sincere Christians who love the Bible, at times get confused. Wow, what am I supposed to think about the Sabbath? So the source is God's word, and I've just got some points I want to, just a basic theology of the Sabbath for us as Christians today. Um, and it, really, the Sabbath starts in Genesis chapter 2. That's the foundation of it. And I, this is good to do this exercise looking at the Old Testament because we don't often get to get into the Old Testament. We spend most of our time in the New Testament here, and we should because Jesus said he came to fulfill the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment. We don't want to spend all our time in what Hebrews said, the shadows. That's the Old Testament. Those are the shadows. We want the essence, the real thing. We want Christ, his fulfillment of it. So we should be preoccupied with the New Testament. The Apostle Paul said he was a minister, plural. Actually, we are ministers of the New Covenant, the New Testament realities that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. And the, the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant, has been fulfilled. And part of that has to do with it's been abrogated in terms of its binding nature on us. So we do need to not just move on, we move up when you go from the Old Testament to the New. It's not just moving on, it's moving up to a higher level, to fulfillment. They don't contradict each other, they perfectly complement one another. But the foundation of the New Testament is the Old Testament. And my experience over time is that there's a lot of Christians that don't routinely study the Old Testament. They don't know the Old Testament. And when the Bible says so many times that Scripture is milk for the soul, for the believer, and meat for your soul, in other words, it's your food. The whole counsel of God, even Paul said repeatedly, Romans, Corinthians, God has given us the Old Testament for our instruction, for our practical instruction, as well as for food for the soul. So if you're a Christian, you should be in the Old Testament on a regular basis. On a rate, if not daily, at least weekly, to feed your soul. To get that knowledge base of what God did in the Old Testament, because that is all in preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. You cannot understand and appreciate the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus Christ if you don't have a fully informed, solid foundation in the Old Testament. You can't understand the New Testament to the degree that God intended. And that's a lifelong journey as a Christian. There's a lot of information there. But always at some point, you know, just be reading something out of the Old Testament. So we have the privilege to do that here in one way, looking at just a couple of passages. Uh, regarding the Sabbath, point number one on the Sabbath is that it really starts in Genesis chapter 2. God creates everything in six days, and then in John, uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 2, it said that God ceased from his work, or he rested. And the Hebrew word there is Shabbat, and that's where we get the word, that's the word for Sabbath. That's Genesis 2-3. That's where Sabbath comes from. It's a Hebrew word. Uh, the Lord, Elohim, God the creator, he, Shabbat, he rested and stopped creating things because it was done. He was finished with creation. It was good. It was very good, exactly the way he wanted it. And he hasn't been creating since then. So that's where it comes from. God rested on the seventh day. He created in six literal days, and literally on the seventh day, he ceased, he rested, Shabbat, to cease or to rest. That's the important historical 
background to it. So that's, say, 4,000 B.C. in the days of Adam and Eve. You fast forward to the days of Moses, about 1,400 B.C., from 4,000 B.C. to 1,400 B.C. God hasn't said anything to his people regarding the Sabbath since the time of Genesis chapter 2, when it said that God rested on the seventh day. So from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, which bypasses Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and other saints. So from the time of Adam to Moses, God never gave an injunction to anybody, as far as we know that's recorded, saying, oh, you need to obey the seventh day. You need to honor the seventh day. You need to not work on the seventh day. God never said that. He never recorded it. He never expected it of the saints. That's a long period of time. That's over a thousand years of God not requiring or expecting anything from his people to be obeying the Sabbath day as a holy ordinance. Didn't happen. Theologians will tell you that it did, and I will say it didn't happen. It's not in the Bible. Uh, Where's the first time that the Sabbath was implemented as a ritual from a religious point of view, from God's requirement? And that would be in Exodus 16. So the context here is in the days of Moses, God raised him up. He delivered about 2 million Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. They get to the Red Sea. God does a miracle, opens up the sea. The almost 2 million Israelites walk through the, dead, or the uh, Red Sea on dry ground. They make it across into the wilderness where they're going to get the Ten Commandments. And then God closes the Red Sea on Pharaoh and his armies and destroys them. So God rescues and saves his people. And that brings you to Exodus 16. That's the context. And they are there for maybe just three days and they can't find any water. And then these 2 million people that just saw the, the greatest miracle in the history of the world don't have any water after three days. And so what do you start to do? They start complaining to Moses, whining to Moses. You brought us out here. We don't have any water. So uh, Moses pleads with God. He prays God provides, and God provides a miracle. God provides water for them. And then he begins to provide food for them. Manna from heaven, whatever that was, we don't quite know what it is. I like to think it was angel food cake because I think that's tasty. And I can eat a lot of it. And he also provided quail, some meats, a little protein, on a regular basis immediately. So he meets their needs. And so that's Exodus 16, 22. And now on the sixth day they get, oh, so God gave this command. Okay, uh, here's what you're going to do for food. They didn't know it was going to be for 40 years, but basically he's saying, here's your menu and what you need to do for the next 40 years while we're out here in the wilderness is I'm going to provide manna every single day and quail. And you need to go out every day, six days a week, and gather the daily manna like you would gather the daily newspaper. And just gather enough for the day. And then the next day, go gather enough just for the day. Trust me for tomorrow. Just just worry about today. For six days. But I don't want you to do this on the seventh day. I don't want you to gather and work on the seventh day. Because uh, the seventh day, I hereby sanction now, is a holy day. And it represents the the seventh day of the creation week when I rested and ceased from my work. And I'm going to set it apart and make it holy, separate, distinct for a very specific purpose, for a holy purpose. And you need to honor that as my people and as my nation. And you will be distinct from all the nations around you in the way that you honor the seventh day. To let people know you belong to me. You belong to Yahweh, the covenant God. That's how you're going to move forward regarding this seventh day. 
And you're not allowed to gather food on the seventh day. You're not allowed to gather manna. So on the day before, day six, you need to gather twice as much. Enough for day six and enough for day seven. Do not go out and try to gather food on the seventh day. Do you understand, Moses? Yes. Can you tell the people that? Can you tell two million people that, Moses? Yes. Moses tells the people, they start doing that, and then lo and behold, seventh day comes around and somebody's going out trying to gather manna. And God said, whoa, 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 and then God had to intervene. Stop that, don't do that. And then for the rest of the Bible, that's what God is saying to his people. Stop that, don't do that. So that's where it's introduced. Exodus 16, uh, that's the first incident. Verse 22 says, now on the sixth day, they gathered. So for us, the sixth day would be, and you said, Friday. Now on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, manna. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, this is what Yahweh meant. Tomorrow is the Sabbath. Tomorrow is a holy day. Tomorrow is the day of recognizing God. Tomorrow is the Sabbath, the Shabbat, the Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over put aside to keep until morning. So they did that. Verse 25, Moses said, For uh, the next day comes along, it's the Sabbath day, and then Moses says, Eat it today, the food that you saved. For today is a Shabbat to Yahweh. Today you will not find the manna in the field. Six days You shall gather, but on the seventh day, the Shabbat, the holy day, there will be no manna. Verse 28, verse 29, see, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is a key phrase. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. What does that mean? That means that the Sabbath was intended by God to be a gift to his people. The Lord has given it. That is huge. That's key. That's how Jesus understood the Sabbath, first and foremost. What is the Sabbath day? It is a gift from God. What is a gift from God? It is intended to be a blessing. It is intended to be a blessing, not a burden. Not a burden. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. God has created the Sabbath day for the people. The Sabbath day is created for man. Man was not created for Sabbath. That's backwards. Verse 30, so the people rested on the seventh day. So that was the first time they were ever told about it. That's the first time they ever practiced it. Fast forward to Exodus chapter 20, and then Moses goes up on the hill, and then God begins to give uh, the 613 laws of theocracy to Moses to give to the people and codify everything and make it permanent as his people in the covenant of Moses. And with that, the foundation of it was the Ten Commandments. And so the next thing God does is he formalizes, codifies and makes permanent this obligation regarding obeying the seventh day as the Sabbath. So you know this is commandment number four. Or uh, you got the first four that honor God. So look at Exodus 20 verse God said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember uh, the Shabbat and keep it holy means set apart. Keep it different. Keep it distinct. That's what holiness means, to be set apart. And you can be set apart in a lot of different ways. Remember means to remember to obey, remember to comply, remember to do it, take action. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then he gives the justification. Why? Well, why should we keep it holy, Lord? 
none of the nations around us do. We haven't been doing this for 1,500 years, 2,500 years. Why now? Oh, because you're my people. I'm creating the theocracy of Israel. I'm creating my nation, my covenant people, from which the Messiah will come. Uh, here's the reason why you keep the Sabbath. Verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all of your work. That's always a good reminder because uh, that has never been reneged by God. God wants us, he wants us to be a, a working, productive people. But specifically for the theocracy, six days are allocated for working, doing labor. The seventh day, the Shabbat, the Saturday, Saturday, is a holy Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, even the slaves, if there were any, get a break. And get this, even the animals that were hardworking, the cattle and uh, the camels and the horses and all those that did manual labor, they get a break. They get a day off too. Don't overwork your animals. Be good stewards. Your cattle, your sojourner, who stays with you? Well, why do we do this, God? This is key, verse 11. Uh, For in six days, oh, by the way, look at chapter 20, verse 1. Who's talking here? Is this Moses talking? No, it says, then God, Elohim, spoke the following words. So when we hear somebody talking, giving the Ten Commandments, that is God Almighty himself talking. This is God. So as a Christian, you've got to decide, do I really believe Exodus 20, verse 1, literally or not? When it says, God spoke these words. That has to do with our hermeneutics and our approach to Scripture. Do we take a face value of the Bible? Is this a historical reality? Did this actually happen? Did God actually say this to Moses? Did Moses actually write this book? Did Moses write this down as God superintended? Or did something else happen? And we're to read this allegorically now and symbolically and not take it literally. And actually, if we take it allegorically and not literally, then chapter 20 verse 1 doesn't mean God spoke all these words. When it says God spoke all these words, it's not, no, God didn't speak all these words. Then you believe just the opposite. Which means then you can't trust your Bible. This is important. This is hermeneutics. How to study the Bible. Well, God spoke all these words to Moses, verse 2. And then God said, I am the Lord your God. Who did the following? I just saved you. I just rescued you from the Egyptians. Now I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments. This is God still talking. Keep that in mind. Absolutely vital. Important. God is talking to Moses and he says this in verse 11. I want you to keep the seventh day holy, sacred, separate, distinct for me as a people because, here's my reason, verse 11, for in six days, and God knows how to count. And for God in the Bible, six means six. He is very consistent about that. Six days, six yom. Yom is the day uh, word for day, and here he means a day. A 24-hour day, a normal day, six days. There's nothing fancy or tricky or uh, over our heads about it. It's just take it at face value. This is what God said. For hey, Moses, in six days, Yahweh, me, I made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that. I created everything in six days. It didn't evolve like the theistic evolutionists try to tell us over thousands of years. No, I created it all in six days, all of it. And it was complete and it was very good. For in the six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and I rested on the seventh day. That would have been, for us, that's Saturday. Therefore, the Lord, or Yahweh, has blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So you either believe that at face value or you don't. You either believe God at his word or you don't. You either believe the Bible or you don't. Absolutely foundational. So God created 
everything in six days, and he didn't use evolution to do it over the course of thousands of years. That's what he says. And this is why the theocracy of Israel was supposed to celebrate the seventh day in honor of God as the creator. That's why they were doing it. They were celebrating the seventh day in honor of God as the creator, that he created everything in six days and rested on the seventh from the time of Moses, which is 1400 B.C., all the way up until the time of Jesus. Jesus honored the Sabbath day. Jesus honored this law in Exodus 20. Jesus celebrated the Sabbath the way it was given by God. So all the way from Moses to 1400 B.C. to the days of Jesus for 1,400 years, God's people, the Israelites, are celebrating the seventh, literally the seventh day in the week. Thank you, Lord, for creating all things in six days and resting on the seventh. So it was at the heart of worship. It was the highlight of their worship week. Jesus believed this, and he celebrated this. He honored this. So that's why God gave the Sabbath. There are several other passages we could read. I don't have time, but... He adds to it. Uh, He's already said it was holy. I gave you the Sabbath as a holy day, distinct, set apart, unique for me. Uh, It's a time of worshiping God. So that's one of the main points. It's a time to focus on God and worship him. He also says it's a time of rest for his people. It's a gift so that you can rest, get uh, refreshed and recover and get built up. You need that. You're finite people. I care about you. That was God's intent. There's another verse that says it is a time of celebration. That means rejoicing. So as an Israelite who believed in Yahweh and God, and as you saw the Sabbath day coming, you're not supposed to be feeling guilty and gearing up and getting paranoid and nervous and, oh, what happens if the Pharisees see me breathing on the Sabbath? That's what it was like in Jesus' day. Whereas you're supposed to be looking at the Sabbath as a great time of anticipation, celebration, relief, recovery, refreshment, Worship, family, being energized, giving the animals a break and the slaves a break, family a break. That was God's intent. It was a gift. By the way, Exodus 20, when he talks about the Sabbath and requirement, he's very general. Basically, just says, honor God with it and don't work. And when he said don't work, he kind of defines that by saying uh, the, way, the way that you work six days with that arduous labor to bring in food and income, don't do that kind of work. He didn't say, he didn't intend to abandon all kinds of work in your life. We know that because uh, circumcision was still required to be done on the eighth day, even if the eighth day landed on the Sabbath. Now, is doing circumcision a medical procedure work? Absolutely it is. So God wasn't saying, just abandon all work. Oh, interestingly enough, the book of Numbers also informs us the priests were also working on the Sabbath day. They didn't get a day off. What were the priests doing? Making sacrifices, required sacrifices that God said the people were obligated to bring either at the tabernacle or the temple. So the priests were working on the Sabbath. But their work was oriented around worship of God, which was supposed to be the highlight of the Sabbath day. So there was work going on on the Sabbath. But there was a certain kind of work that was forbidden. So God's pretty clear. They also had, uh, and then God gave in Exodus 23, a Sabbath year. Every uh, 49 years, there was a Sabbath year. An entire 12 months was a Sabbath. 
And the main thing there was to give the land a rest. Give the land a rest. And that was called the Jubilee year. And other things were attached to that. One of the things they did at the Jubilee year every 49 years, which would have been that 50th year, Jubilee year, that was called a Sabbath year. You give the land a rest for an entire year. Uh, you forgive debts to certain people. You, you let uh, indentured servants free to liberate them. So Sabbath was about refreshment, being re-energized, worship, celebration, and also key, liberation, being set free and enjoying the fullness of life. Exodus 23 and other passages. So very important to understand the historical reality of God's intention regarding Sabbath for the theocracy of Israel. Uh, the importance of it, it was of highest importance because God gave 613 laws to Moses. They all had consequences if you broke them, and the consequences varied. There was a hierarchy of consequences. The death penalty was given for only a select few of the commandments God gave. Adultery, sexual immorality, blasphemy. But also breaking the Sabbath was one that required the death penalty. That's in a rare elitist camp there. So that, that tells you how sacred and important it was to God. There's a story in the, uh, here in the Torah where somebody goes and they're, they're gathering wood and stone or, or sticks on the Sabbath, and that person was summarily executed in accordance with the Mosaic law for working on the Sabbath. So that's important. Uh, the function of it was to set, a, set Israel apart. On, it was twofold. What was the purpose of it? Or The function of the Sabbath was to, to be holy, to set Israel apart from its neighbors, but also to unify Israel as a people. As a common body, it united them. They had one mindset and one purpose coming together, not just politically, but religiously about our God, and this is one of the ways that we worship him. So it was a unifying practice and principle, very important. Uh, other things about the Sabbath, Jesus actually taught on the Sabbath in the synagogue, and he wasn't implicated or accused for breaking the Sabbath for being a teacher, so you could teach on the Sabbath, apparently. Uh, the Old Testament doesn't say that you can't teach on the Sabbath. So that was one thing where Jesus didn't get impugned for doing something on the Sabbath when he taught on the Sabbath in a synagogue. Uh, it was a, the Sabbath was a law for Israel. It was a law for Israel. That's important because for the church, Paul said clearly, we are not under law. We are not under the law of Moses. That's clear. Galatians. We're not under the theocracy of Israel either. Uh, the... Sabbath was never commanded for the church in the New Testament. So you go into the New Testament, and the Sabbath, the way it's given in the Old Testament, is never commanded for the church. Uh, the apostles and the epistles, they never command the church, okay, you need to obey the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, just the opposite is told to the church. Colossians 2.16. The apostle Paul is talking to this legalistic fashion, faction in the Colossian church. And I don't know, they were probably influenced maybe by Jewish legalists and other kinds of weird theology, and they're being legalistic, and they're uh, undermining their freedom they have in Christ, and he reprimands them slightly and codifies it, writes it down so that we have it in the New Testament. So it applies to us. It's get rid of your don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, being equivalent with true religion. That's legalistic. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. Refrain from this, refrain. That's legalism. Paul said, don't do that. Colossians 2.16, he literally says, don't let anybody judge you regarding a new moon or a Sabbath day. Don't subject yourself to that yoke 
of legalism that comes right out of the Old Testament. That's for the theocracy of Israel. That was not the purpose of the Sabbath. So that is explicit. We don't celebrate the Sabbath. We don't practice the Sabbath as a church. Today is not the Sabbath day. Jesus and the apostles instituted and replaced the Sabbath day with the Lord's day, which is Sunday, which is Resurrection Sunday. We are celebrating Jesus' resurrection every Sunday when we gather as a people, as the church. It's called the Lord's Day, not the Sabbath. We don't practice the Sabbath, but the Sabbath has been fulfilled by Jesus. So uh, that's important. God gave the Sabbath as a type. T-Y-P-E. What's that? That's a technical term, meaning as a prophecy, as a, a living, metaphorical, observable prophecy. Some prophecies were spoken one time. Some prophecies were written down in Scripture, and some prophecies were lived out. Some were lived out uh, one time only. Some prophecies that were lived out, became tangible and seen, were made permanent and repeatable, and the Sabbath was one of those. Given that was, It was to be a living, ongoing, typical prophecy to also let the people know something greater is coming in time. Something greater is coming. What did the Sabbath have inherently at its root in terms of its prophetic meaning? Well, uh, rest, refreshment, and at the higher level that meant salvation from God. The ultimate rest is forgiveness of sin from your creator. That is what the Sabbath actually pictured as a prophecy, as a type. And that's what Hebrews 4 says, that Jesus came, he fulfilled the Sabbath. The Sabbath, Shabbat, rest, and through his death, resurrection, his reigning on high, he provides forgiveness of sin and eternal life to sinners, and that gives them not a temporary six-day rest or a one-day rest. This is eternal rest forever. Total forgiveness of sin. A child or daughter, a daughter, uh, son, son and daughter of God, in the family of God, eternally secure, conscience clean, conscience clear, weight off your shoulders. From the love of God through Jesus Christ. So we don't practice the Sabbath today. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath for us. I like that. That's eternal. That is permanent. So there's just a quick overview of uh, the significance of the Sabbath. It's true meaning. And at the heart of it was worship of God. So the focus wasn't on you and me and refraining. That was the wrong emphasis. Unfortunately, that's what the... It had become uh, the, the Pharisees who were running the religion in Jesus' day over Israel, who were the masters, along with the Sadducees and the scribes of the Old Testament, they were reading the Mosaic law wrong. They twisted it. They perverted it. They smothered it with human tradition so that they came up with a wrong interpretation and purpose of the Sabbath. And they were like the spiritual Gestapo, going around with their little whistles and clubs, looking to smack somebody over the head that violates their version and understanding of the Sabbath, which was completely twisted and not according to the Bible. Because their emphasis on the Sabbath was, it is what man does. It's what you do and what you refrain from doing, so God will like you, or that God won't be mad at you. That was the Sabbath. And boy, they had it down. And over the course of time, uh, over a hundred years of Jewish rabbinic tradition had been growing and accumulating, and they're writing it down, and they're creating this book and commentary that you're supposed to use. You don't just read the Mosaic Law straight as it is. You've got to read it through the, uh, the lens of the Jewish tradition that reinterprets it kind of and gives you a totally different meaning. That's what they, so they smothered the Word of God with their traditions. Jesus literally said that. And that's what they did with the Sabbath. 
So their view of the Sabbath was absolutely turned on its ear, twisted. Instead of being about rest, it is now about restrictions. Instead of being about refreshment, it is now all about guilt. Instead of bringing relief, it brings a burden. So you can turn back to Luke 14 now. And most importantly, it's supposed to be about the worship of Almighty God. And they turned it into just the opposite. This is all about self-righteousness. So we pick up. Jesus has been preaching, spoke to a couple crowds. He made the Jews angry because he told them more Gentiles are going to be saved than Jews that are living today. They're following him around. We've seen it through the, the, the whole gospel loop that the Pharisees have been chasing Jesus around looking to catch him, looking to kill him, looking to shut him down. Since, the very, since his first sermon three years previous in his hometown of Nazareth, when he got up in the synagogue and, did, uh, and, and taught in the synagogue, said he fulfilled scripture, and then he mentioned that the Gentiles will be saved, and it says they were filled with anger. He's the preacher. Imagine that. And he said that the Gentiles could be forgiven. And they all at once got up in anger, seething rage, and attacked him. And I don't know if there was a back door to the synagogue. There must have been because it said he slipped out. And they chased him to where there was a cliff. And it said they intended to grab him and throw him off the cliff. You know what that means? That means they wanted to kill him. So that's, that's been their mindset since day one. That is the Pharisees. And so we see that repeated all throughout the gospel. Well, here it is again. So let's go to chapter 14, verse 1. So Jesus is going around. He's kind of an itinerant preacher. He's meeting Jews everywhere because he's in the land of Israel. There are synagogues everywhere. There are thousands of synagogues and even more thousands of Pharisees because they rule the synagogues. And so it's, it happened here in Perea probably that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, uh-oh, that's what you should have said when you read that. Not just a Pharisee, that never goes well. 100% of the time in the Gospel of Luke, and he, he has an encounter with Pharisees, it never goes well. This is one of the big shots, the, the big hoo-hahs, the intimidating ones, the in, influential ones, the one that knows his stuff. Kind of like uh, when, and you open the door, hello, we're from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And then there's two Mormons there. And they're, they're usually 18, 19, young guys. Or, uh, hi, we're here from the kingdom of God. And this is Jehovah's Witnesses. And there's usually, they're in twos. And then if you engage with them and talk, and you want to have another conversation, you agree to another conversation, inevitably what happens, they get rid of the young guys, and then the experienced guys will come talk to you. The guys that know their stuff. The seasoned guys that really know the doctrine of the church that have had these conversations. They're not intimidated by anybody. They've got an answer for everything. So that's kind of what's going on here. This is a leader of the Pharisees. So the Pharisee, the Pharisee, don't be deceived. The Pharisees got a network from uh, northern Palestine, Israel, all the way down to the south. They know what's going on. They work together in lockstep. They had their schools. They had their leaders the leaders of the Pharisees, so this guy is a big shot. He's in, so Jesus is invited to his house uh, on the Sabbath, so that's key. So there's the two key words in verse 1. 
Pharisee, and then Sabbath. So it's on the Sabbath. To eat bread. So Jesus was invited to lunch, fellowship meal after synagogue. They did their celebration, religious service on Saturday, and this is the fellowship meal at somebody's house. And he's a Pharisee. And they were watching closely. They were watching him closely in the house. And there in front of him at the house was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees there at the lunch in this guy's house. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him, the one that was laying there with dropsy, a disease, and Jesus healed him, and then he sent him away. And Jesus said to everybody there at the lunch, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well, that happens routinely there in the land of Israel, and will not immediately pull him out of the well, even if it's a Sabbath day? Verse 6, and they could make no reply to Jesus on this matter. So it's just six verses. Not a whole lot of information, but it is loaded. It is potent. So let's just look at it. Let's look at those three points that I outlined for you there. Um, and one of the themes here, I think, is legalism. Jesus is confronting several things on, and he's also not just confronting things, he's elaborating things. He's expanding on the mercy and grace of God that is inclusive in the kingdom of God, of Gentiles, of the dirty Gentiles, that they can be forgiven as well. That's an ongoing theme as well. Uh, to set the context, this lunch that takes place at the Pharisee's house starts at verse 1 and goes all the way to verse 24. So we'll be there next time as well. That's one sitting, one context. There's a lot that happens at, at that lunch, a lot that Jesus says. But this is the thing that started it all. This was the catalyst. Uh, and I think one of the things here that jumps out is Jesus uh, confronts legalism head on because this was the problem with the, the religion of Israel in the days of Jesus. And it had gone undergone degeneration. God gave this religion to his people, promised to Abraham, but fulfilled with Moses and the Mosaic Covenant in the Old Testament and the Torah in particular. The first five books of the Bible was intended to be God's divine revelation given out of the grace of God as a gift so they might come to realize their sin and be rescued by a gracious God who is a Savior and would provide the way of forgiveness for them. By grace, through faith, apart from works, that's always been God's plan. That was true in the Old Testament under the days of Moses. And over time, these disobedient people have continued to twist God's scripture and turn it into a legalistic right, uh, works righteousness system where you earn favor from God based on what you do on your terms. And that is absolutely prostituting God's intention of what true, pure religion is. Religion is not bad. False religion is bad, and that's what this has become. And Jesus, he's a religious man. He's a rabbi. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He's the Messiah. This is all religious in orientation. Pure religion, true religion, religion of the soul, religion of the spirit, religion of the physical body, religion representing the one true God, to bring relief and salvation to sinful people. That's Jesus' message. And one of the things that attacks that and undermines that and clouds that worse than anything else is called legalism. And you can have legalism in the religions of the world that have nothing to do with Christianity. You can have secular legalism. And probably what's worst is religious legalism. Christian religious legalism. That's actually the worst. Or, or biblical religious 
uh, religion, and that's what Jesus is attacking here, because it's, it's distorting the word of God so that the people can't access God's truth. They're shutting the doors of heaven by their legalism. And that's what he's attacking here. Uh, what is legalism? Just a brief definition so that we got that down. I would say if I were to define what is religious, biblical religious legalism, scriptural legalism, which is not good, it's a damning belief system. Legalism is an attitude. That's where it starts. It is a belief system. It starts on the inside and what you think. It manifests itself, sure, in actions, but it's a belief system and an attitude. That is legalism. And what is the attitude or belief system? You actually believe that you can earn God's favor by your human works. And there's a direct correlation. The more good works I do, the more God likes me. And it's proportional as well. The more you do, the better. The more detailed you are, the more precision you have in your legalism. And that's why the Pharisees, they were the masters. Pharisees, the pure ones, the separate ones. That's what they were known as or called themselves. And they were the masters of Hebrew Mosaic legalism. And not only did they say they believe in the Mosaic laws given, 613 laws, they created thousands and thousands of other laws by which they interpreted the Mosaic law. So just on the Sabbath day alone, that one Sabbath command, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, because of the traditions they have inherited from rabbis who came before them, who concocted and made up man-made laws regarding the Sabbath, there were dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of laws you had to know regarding the Sabbath day. Kind of like our tax code here in America, there's so many, you can't possibly keep track. And it keeps growing. And that was true of their laws with the Sabbath. So no wonder they had a fear going in the Sabbath. Man, you know what? I'm not going outside. I'm staying inside on the Sabbath. I ain't talking to nobody. Except you did have to go to synagogue. So, uh uh-oh. That could be a problem. So they had all these man-made laws. uh, And the Pharisees admitted that they abided by the man-made laws of the rabbis. So that is legalism. And another thing that legalism did is it always elevated man-made laws to the same level as Scripture. That's a key feature of legalism. It elevates man-made laws, human tradition, to the equivalent of Scripture. And at the same time, it actually de-elevates the authority of Scripture. Or what legalism does, it smothers Scripture or it twists and interprets Misinterpret scripture. That's legalism. And we have it all over the day. We have it in the churches. We have it in our church. We have it in every church. That's just the way it is. That's human tendency. Every human being is somewhere on the spectrum with legalism and then the other extreme being a libertarian to a a gross extreme. And everywhere else in between. So we have to guard against it. So to guard against it, we have to know what it is, legalism. And Jesus helps us here. And so uh, as he's dealing with the Pharisees, the best way, to, I think, to describe the Pharisees from a modern-day point of view, because when you think about, okay, how do, what does legalism look like today? Well, uh, my, some people might say, well, Roman Catholicism. Because they have their flamboyance and their rituals and outward appearance and the externals and their robes and their candles and their incense and their traditions and their man-made laws that are elevated to the level of Scripture. And so to a degree, yes. But Roman Catholics, they aren't legalistic in everything. And there's a lot of areas where Catholics are not legalistic at all. How do I know? Because I grew up one. 
What I learned about legalism is when I became a Christian and joined the Protestant church. Hyper-conservative fundamentalist churches that I was a part of. So like the fundamentalist movement, uh, the Protestant fundamentalist movement that grew out of the 1920s and 30s and is still with us today. It's called uh, uh, Protestant fundamentalism, classic Protestant fundamentalism. They believed in the Bible. They believed in Jesus. They they usually have the gospel down right, but then they had all these other human traditions and man-made laws that they elevated, and they were superficial. They were shallow. They were things that God didn't condemn. Oh, you can't ever dance. You can't play cards. Cards are of the devil. You can't ever go to a movie. The theater, the cinema, it's of the devil. Uh, How long your hair was. If you wear a suit to church on Sunday, man, you better wear a tie. Otherwise, God doesn't like you. Ladies, if you're not wearing a dress, shame on you. And how, by the way, how long is your dress? I hope it's covering your ankles. I hope your neck isn't exposed. And on and on it goes. And they just got this long list, and this long list is always growing. And you can never master the list because they're in charge of the list. And they make up the list. And you don't know the list. So they're always a step ahead of you. So you fear them. So they have power over you. That's the point. And it's the elitist fundamental ones. They're the ones that, and the only ones really, that please God. And it's all by human works. So what was a Pharisee? Well, take... Uh, The problem with Roman Catholicism is not legalism as much as it's ritualism that drowns out the truth of the Bible. Take Roman uh, the externals of Roman Catholicism and its ritualism replacing truths of the Bible and combine that with classic Protestant fundamentalism, legalistic fundamentalism, and there you, I think you have a perfect picture of what a Pharisee was in Jesus' day. It's the externals and the pomp and circumstance and the superficialities, all the man-made rituals, along with the horrible, rotten, judgmental, condescending, godless attitude of a religious legalist that historically was exemplified in the fundamentalist movement to certain degrees. That's a Pharisee. So with all that background that I thought was very important, we will pick that up next time. As we walk through the story and see Jesus confront these legalistic Pharisees Head on. And it's a beautiful thing because then Jesus shows us how we can be liberated from religious legalism that is either entangling our life right now and you just don't even realize it, or it's breathing over your shoulder or over your head or in a blog you like to read or a study Bible you have or a practice that you're currently observing. Because Jesus came to set people free, didn't he? Blessed Savior. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.